Welcome to episode 279 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg. On this week's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Jessica Luther and Kavitha A. Davidson, who are the co-authors of the new book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, Dilemmas of the Modern Fan, about the ways in which the culture around sports can be in conflict with our own belief systems and how we reconcile that. Tennis, which is covered in a chapter of the book, has a lot of conflict to offer for this conversation, and we focus on much of that in this episode, including the misdirect of the focus on equal pay between men and women, individual versus team sports for activism purposes, the evolution of the perception of Serena Williams's marketability, how fans should respond to an athlete whose political expressions they find off-putting, and what to make of sports continuing to soldier on with business as somewhat usual amid a raging ongoing global pandemic. I think you'll like this one. Here's my chat with Jessica and Kavitha. Enjoy. Very excited to be joined by Kavitha Davidson and Jessica Luther, who are the co-authors of the new hit 2020 book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, Dilemmas of the Modern Fan. Kavitha and Jessica, thank you both for being on here today. Appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having us. So tennis scoring, as people know, begins with love. And you use the word twice in your title. So I want to start with the discussion of love, as we don't (laughs) normally do on this podcast, but it seemed appropriate here. So... You use it twice in the title in different contexts. So what do you mean by love first from your end in terms of loving sports? And then what is the love that you don't feel in return that you wish there was more of? Whichever one of you wants to feel this first. Kavitha, if you want to go first, she's pointing at you. uh, (laughs) I guess it's kind of appropriate that love is empty right love yeah, is zero uh, is, yeah. because sometimes it can it can feel extremely empty when it comes to loving sports and teams and and athletes i think first when we talk about just loving these games and these people who play them it's just joy it's pure like un- unadulterated joy to watch these people who are humans accomplish these superhuman things i'm always saying that sports is modern day mythology it's the closest that we get to it and for a lot of us Our love of sports comes from where we grew up and who we grew up with and our families, and it can be passed down for generations. And and those are bonds that really do tie. And then when they don't love you back, it's when it's when everything about your identity starts to come into question in the sports realm by other sports fans, by these things that you continue to give yourself to and your emotions to that may not reciprocate in the same way. And I think that there are lots of different ways that that can happen. There are a lot of different degrees to which you can feel that. But what we're trying to do in this book is speak to everyone who has felt that in some way over the course of their sports fandom. For sure. Jessica, I don't know if you want to add on to that. Yeah, that was a great, that was a pretty good answer. I will say that there is this idea that sports are a meritocracy, that everyone fits in them all the time, that if you Mm -hmm. just are good enough, there's a space for you. And that in reality, a lot of the time, sports can be incredibly exclusionary and you can be reminded that you don't fit either as a fan or an athlete. And that that's really what we're getting at here. Those moments when you bump up against that stuff in sports and suddenly you don't feel like you're included, like you're not part of this thing that in, in lots of other ways does include you. And that feeling of like, but I'm giving my all to you. I'm literally cheering for you constantly. I'm putting my money into you. And then yeah. you're telling me that somehow I don't I don't belong here. Yeah, for sure. You have a chapter in the book about tennis. Obviously, this book covers all sorts of sports. Tennis, I think, is chapter four in your book. And I'm curious where you think tennis sort of falls in this continuum of lovability and reciprocity of, of love uh, mm. in your in your terms and what I'm I'm guessing and maybe I don't know if you have a, a sort of graph of like the lovability or of sport I'm guessing like college football might be one of the toughest to love I'm guessing tennis is probably gets higher <laughs> scores overall on your metrics um, with some of the equality that it has achieved in certain categories obviously not perfect how do you how do you approach tennis from a tennis centric view on, on this sort of its overall rough grade here however you want to quantify that Yeah, I love tennis so much. I'm so excited (laughs) to be here talking to you about tennis. I think in a lot of ways that tennis is really lovable. Like one of the things I'd like to talk about, I think is spectacular is that when you turn on tennis coverage, unlike almost every other sport, you can turn it on and 
whatever matches on, there could still be a bunch of women commentating and talking. And that has been true for so long. And for a long time, that was really the only space where you saw that all the time. Thankfully, mm. that's not as true now. But tennis has really always been in the forefront in that way. So there was always this feeling like women have always been as, been as long as I've been alive. Like that's been a huge part of it. Of course, we can talk as much as you'd like about how much coverage women get and the equality of that and all those sorts of things. But still, compared to almost all other sports, tennis really leads the way there. And in, and in part of that, too, um, is because there are so many phenomenal female tennis players. And so as a woman who loves watching sports, that's one of the places that you could easily go. When I was in high school, I fell in love with tennis. And I think probably in part... I mean, the Williams sisters were coming up at that exact time. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that was part of the draw for me. I can't remember now, but I'm sure that part of it was that I saw a lot of women playing it whenever I turned it on. And so certainly, I think those are some of the great things about tennis that have kept me a fan for two decades, three decades. How old am I? For like three <laughs> decades. <laughs> Could be that yeah, about you. I, I, I love tennis too i think ben actually the last time you and i saw each other in person was probably at last year's u.s open Mm -hmm. um back when we were allowed to go to the u.s open um and yeah i mean there's there's such a romanticism about it there's it's it's such a beautiful game but at the same time the class aspect of tennis is kind of unmatched unless you're looking at golf or maybe some other um, higher echelon sports that really do reinforce the idea that it doesn't always love you back if you're right. not a wealthy white man, right? And that's what's been really interesting to see how tennis has had to evolve over the years, especially with the with the Williams sisters and how much farther it still has to go. So I think that with tennis, you know, you have all kinds of similar issues that you have in other sports. You have pay inequality and you have, um, you know, racism, but you have this very interesting class dynamic on top of it. You know, the whole sport of Kings thing and and maintaining the purity of the sport and, and how loaded that notion is that you don't really have with other, with other sports. That also plays into the divides, I think, generationally and also obviously within class and racial circles about how fans themselves consume them. I mean, if you talk to fans, it's always really interesting to me to talk to fans who aren't huge fans of Serena's, but they love Venus, right? Hmm. And it's always this, you know, Venus kind of, she's quieter. She plays the quote unquote right way. Um, She's not as fiery. She's demure, right? She adheres to all of these standards that tennis tells us is important in sportsmanship. And the idea of tennis in particular kind of evolving in what our notion of sportsmanship is and what the sportsman or sportswoman looks like is really interesting to us. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think especially maybe like 15 years ago when they were more sort of battling for supremacy atop the sport, there were a lot of fans who would make the I like Venus but not Serena distinction and how that was sort of whatever that coded for or whatever Venus was doing, quote unquote, correctly or admirably that they thought Serena was falling short on. Yeah, that's an interesting interesting point there for sure i i do jessica to your point i do think that tennis had a unique advantage in terms of women's sports because tennis was always open to women from the beginning uh as a sort of victorian garden party activity as it started out in england like it was always seen as something that was appropriately feminine or not too masculine for for women and they could play it in their dresses and things like that and it was always sort of seen through these really uh patriarchal reasons as being mm-hmm. okay for women to do and now and that sort of that has been a, almost a weirdly like a positive vestige for it to have that women have always been accepted in there and Wimbledon has had both men and women for over a century now and it, it's something where they kind of didn't feel like they had to catch up too much they were always included and, and mixed doubles was included too I mean men and women competing together hmm. from, yeah that's from interesting I saw your tweet about that the other day about missing <laughs> your mixed doubles mm-hmm. the other thing about tennis is that it's an individual sport yeah and for whatever reason, we have a much easier time being okay with female athletes when they're individuals versus when they are on teams. So like tennis had that advantage that these women weren't competing in teams all the time. And of course, they had uh, Billie Jean back in the early 70s, and her relentless drive for equality. So yeah, there's all these things that sort of by the time I showed up to watch tennis, were were in place in a way that has kept me a fan. And I think, go ahead, Kavitha. 
it's always really interesting to me to talk to tennis with Jessica, who loves tennis so much, but came into tennis slightly later in in life. I think she said high school, whereas, you know, I grew up with tennis, but I grew up, I grew up with tennis with the Williams sisters. Like, I don't know tennis without them. Hmm. And while I can recognize how they've completely changed the landscape I can't personally relate to what it was like to watch tennis before them and what this like what this kind of romanticized notion of the past that a lot of people are still kind of grasping for what they're actually grasping for there because it's you know we will never know and kids today growing up with tennis will never know tennis before the Williams sisters. It's a pretty beautiful thing. Yeah, for sure. Now, I think what you're saying about the individual sport thing, one thing I think that also does work in tennis's favor in these sort of conversations is that it is an open sport, right? That it's not, you would never mm-hmm. have a situation in tennis like you would have with a Colin Kaepernick or with a Michael Sam even who needed some sort of permission or approval to be in their NFL jobs from some sort of gatekeeper, right? Who could, who could set whatever limits on whatever sort of behavior mm. or identity they wanted in their own players and in tennis basically i think you have a quote from serena in your tennis chapter that says her family truly changed tennis and she says not because we were welcomed because but because we wouldn't stop winning right so uh-huh. if you achieve a ranking where you get into all the tournaments they have to let you in the tournaments that's that's kind of the rule it's an open sport yeah. that way and i think that allows for uh, hmm, a different sort of to use the word, I guess meritocracy in that way, it can't be denied in tennis, it's, but it's, it's, it's different. It's closer to a meritocracy, yeah. right? Yeah. You can't yeah. have you can't have who someone is or what they stand for be a clubhouse distraction, or you can't use chemistry mm. right. as an excuse, right? It's It really is how good you are on the court. That's not to discount how all of the other stuff is actively used against some of these athletes, but, you know, it's, it's harder to do so in an individual sport. And then I, I'm wondering, just from you guys having covered all these sports, if you see tennis also, you mentioned Billie Jean earlier, Jessica, and obviously Serena, I mean, as we're talking about here already, that tennis, and we can throw in like Arthur Ashe or something on the men's side too, tennis has had these sort of groundbreakers or boundary movers who've been able to do this through the openness of tennis. And obviously tennis had to desegregate at some point. There was a whites only formally sport until... I think Althea Gibson was the first one to desegregate the U.S. Open in the 50s. Does tennis have, because of that individual, do you think it can be uniquely shifted by individuals, by individual breakout stars in a, in a way that other sports are more resistant to? Or is that is that a fair thing to say hmm. in terms of tennis? Or how, how would you... I, I'm wondering. Cause I, th- I feel like we can talk more about tennis pioneers more easily than I can in, in terms of a group of them than in like baseball or football, where obviously there was Jackie Robinson, but he had to get signed by the, the Dodgers and allowed to play by them. I don't know how Hmm. that makes sense as a question. Yeah, I don't know. I actually don't. I have never thought of it that way. So I'm not sure I'm going to have a great coherent answer for you on this. I mean, I do think it's clear that like an individual can really Mm -hmm. push uh, ideas and narratives forward within tennis. And in part because of what we were just talking about, like if you're good at it, (laughs) um, you're just there. They have to figure out how to deal with you. I think uh, Naomi at the U.S. Open this year wearing her masks, right? Like, Mm -hmm. and that was not smooth. The media did not handle that (laughs) smoothly all the time. But, like, they had to figure it out. Like, they had to learn how to talk about it because she was good. And obviously, she won the whole thing. But, you know, that forced something on them in a way that if you're part of a team, you can get subsumed into it or literally pushed out of it. as we've seen multiple times in, in team sports. So that's definitely true, but I don't want to take, yeah, that's hard. Cause like, I don't want to take away from what individuals in team sports are able to do themselves. Cause of course, like you just said, I mean, certainly you can name people who do that work, who've, mm-hmm. who've pushed us forward. I mean, I, I know, think Kahita. also, I'm not sure if this is a function of tennis being an individual sport, but the observation that I've had is the pioneers in tennis have all been great, right? Yeah. We haven't had someone break a color barrier who was just an okay or middling player who won, you know, one major and then kind of faded into the, into the distance. I've, t- I've thought about this a lot recently with, um, you know, the NHL just had its highest drafted ever black player, um, Quentin Byfield, who went number two. And we were looking at the history of this and the reporter that we interviewed about it, you know, made he, he likened him to Serena Williams, to Arthur Ashe, to Tiger Woods. But when you look at Serena hmm. in particular, she had Althea and Arthur come before her. 
all of these people who came into tennis to break those barriers just be legendary. They were just phenomenal players. Whereas if you look at some of the other actual barrier breakers, obviously not Jackie Robinson, but sometimes the the, the pioneers are the first and they're not necessarily the best. And then the other side of that is usually in order to be the first, you have to be the best. And that's maybe easier or a smoother path to achieve in tennis. I'm not really sure, but that is that is definitely something that we've seen. Yeah. No, I think Althea Gibson, who was the first one to break the color barrier in tennis in the U.S. at least, she was she did go on to win, I think, five Grand Slams in the 50s. So she clearly was a, a great player and wasn't being let in just to be someone who might make the second round or something like that. I mean, she had she, sort she of had also to... break barriers in golf. Yeah, yeah, she, she, she yeah. I mean, she, she was played just, LPGA yes. after her tennis career. Yeah, yeah, she was a phenomenal athlete all around. Yeah, no, for sure. Tennis, I think, obviously, we talked about the you know the visibility of women in tennis, just as part of your love for it, and also it has this equality in terms of equal pay at the Grand Slams, which has been a major bragging point for tennis and on on the equality front uh, for a long time. But as you talk about in your chapter with uh, discussions at 2016 Indian Wells between Serena and Ray Moore and. Novak Djokovic, there's still sort of an underlying tension a lot of times about this equal pay from the men who are a lot of a lot of men are still grumbling about it at various times. And it might feel like, you know, a done deal on a lot of levels. I think it probably is. And I I think it'd be very, very hard for the Grand Slams to go back on equal pay at this point, uh, just from a PR perspective, nothing else. But what do you what do you talk about underlying tension to? And is that ever something that could go away? Or is that something that will just always exist when men and women are competing side by side in, in the sport. I I feel like maybe we should go ask the men this question. Yeah. <laughs> like, will this ever go away? They seem to be the ones that have a really hard time with it. And as we wrote about in the book, like I have a really hard time with someone like Novak Djokovic having an issue with this. I mean, Serena will never make the money that Djokovic has made, even though he came out professionally eight years behind her. You know, like just, oh, that makes me, my skin's on fire um, thinking about it. But, um, yeah, it's interesting because tennis is so good at this in a way that a lot of sports are not, uh, that men in tennis have just had to deal with this. And they're not, of course, always great at it because we live in a sexist culture in general. But I agree with you. They're not, we're not going back, certainly not on the Grand Slam level. I do think it's important to note, as we do in the book, like, it's not every turn. Like, a lot of tournaments are not equal pay uh, that... I don't know if what they are on the next level, like with Miami and Indian Wells. Indian Wells is right. There's but a like, few. I don't know. So Indian Wells is, Miami is, Madrid is, but basically that's it. And the rest. Yeah, and so and all the other parts of tennis, women are getting paid less. So like in practice, this isn't even what's actually happening. So I, that just the idea that like in the little bit of space where women are actually getting the same amount of pay, that like that's too much. Like that's an affront to men in tennis is so gross on some level. It's like even hear that discussion, everything about Moore at Indian Wells is just a mess. He was a mess. Um, and Serena handled that beautifully. But I don't know. I'm sorry. What am I? What is the question I'm answering? <laughs> I, I think I'm I now think, just I'm like, I got so mad that I like, well, lost well just I guess I guess can that tension ever go away? Kavitha, go ahead. I go mean, it's Kavitha. a function yeah. of pitting worker against worker, right? Yeah. We talk a lot in this book about how yeah. athletes are workers, right? And this is a really effective strategy is instead of getting mad at management, um, which is supposedly the idea behind unionization, right, is to is to organize labor against management um, to be able to stand up to management. Right now, you have male workers fighting with women workers and instead of what the actual problem here is. Um, and to Jessica's point, you know, once we get past the Grand Slams and the three tournaments you mentioned, Ben, the the money that we're talking about, I mean, the majority of athletes don't make anywhere near the kind of money that we think of, right? Yeah. And, and this is their job still. And this is how they, you know, sustain themselves. Um, and so this idea that somehow the women are taking away from the men has been a really effective strategy in continuing to just keep equal pay down and keep pay down in general, which is why a un- like unionization in theory sounds like a really good idea. The way that Novak Djokovic is going about it is not a really good way to go about it um, by excluding the women. So, you know, all of those things kind of put together paints that picture of how effectively that messaging has been. It also, you know, the 
straw man that's always brought out is that the men do more work, right? They play five sets when the women play three. And no one ever talks about the fact that women have been fighting for more than a decade to try and play five sets. And that on the other side, men want to play three. (laughs) And I think that we can find a happy medium where there would actually be equality. But it helps the argument that women don't do as much work when they when when Hmm. you can point to that inequality, right? Yeah. Um, So it's set up, right? It's set up so that there's an easy argument. And we should they should all be playing three sets and that would just solve everything and make me a lot happier um but that's you know, my I controversial that. tennis yeah. no, i know no, sure. <laughs> i felt safe I mean, saying I, it I here. do think there's this there's this fascinating thing in, in that with the men playing best of five which prevents them from makes them wears them out or just is prohibited from them playing doubles too and so a lot of times yeah. you have serena like going or venus did this too go win wimbledon in singles and also win it with her sister in doubles and wind up taking home more once equal pay was introduced, or maybe even before that, then the men's singles champ could because the best of five was prohibited mm. for him entering a second event. So the men are sort of sticking to their best of five, despite it being just from a labor term, like you know, more more work for the same pay. Uh, right. And, instead and this t- is talking about the women instead of just making their own conditions better, which I, I don't. And get. it's just grand slams. Right. So mm-hmm. like this is another thing about tennis that if you are only yeah. watching grand slams, you think the men are always out there playing five sets. And in fact, they often don't. So in these tournaments where they're not getting equal pay, they're actually playing the same amount of sets as right. the women are. So it breaks down as soon as you go down. Um when you're looking at tennis at large rather than just on that top level. And to Kavitha's point, that's such a good point, Kavitha. The idea that like women are taking away from men, which of course is not actually true in practice. But I do think, and we get in this in the book, we um, interviewed Lindsay Gibbs, who's obviously our friend and she's my co-host on Burn It All Down. And Deep friend of NCR, Lindsay Gibbs, yes. Yes, uh, love, love Lindsay. And she really breaks down like that there are huge issues with pay within tennis in yeah. general. So as soon as you like drop down far enough in the rankings, you're literally scraping by. Uh, and so there's probably lots of people in tennis who have a lot of feelings about pay um, that if you're not Novak Djokovic, like part of what bothers me about these men that do get the platform to complain about this are often the ones who are not scraping by and, and struggling and don't actually have any of these issues. Sure. But I could see where all this resentment could come from where you're just trying to pull money wherever you can get it right because it's really expensive to tour the world and play tennis when you are not bringing in big prize money yeah the more productive conversation to me what isn't how much are the women making compared to the men at the very top level it's how much is everyone making at the top compared to everyone in the middle and everyone at the bottom and tennis already i mean obviously is such an expensive sport just to break into there's already that barrier um and then to just maintain your career in that sport you know it's it's the classic have versus have nots conversation that we have in every sport, whenever a CBA comes up for negotiation, right? It's who are the superstars? What are they making? What are they making? And then who is making league minimum? And that's the conversation that we have yet to really have in tennis. And this men versus women equal pay conversation serves as such a convenient distraction for the powers that be to not have the actual conversation that should be happening. Yeah, you're right. And there is no league minimum in tennis. Obviously, there's no CBA. Everyone is just sort of only sort of eating what they can kill is sort of the tennis term. Everyone's independent contractor. Everyone can just get what you can find. And on the, I think, 2020 Forbes highest paid athletes list, Roger Federer was number one overall across all sports. Naomi Osaka was number one uh, for women in sports. Uh, tennis is pretty much always number one for the women. And pretty much mm-hmm. almost all the top 10 highest paid female athletes are generally at least eight or nine of them are women in any given year. But so you have those top earners, but then it drops really fast. And then maybe, maybe there's only six, despite those superlatives, there's maybe only six tennis players in the top hundred of, of both men and women together. And, hmm. and then you get down to like 100, or maybe across both tours, maybe like 250 players are like actually meaningfully breaking even to where they can have some money to take home and aren't just, you know, covering expenses. And so that's a, that's a uniquely uh, talk about, you know, general, political conversations about the rich getting richer or pay inequalities or income gaps growing tennis is that's one area where it's hugely not progressive or impressive uh in any sense that you have these big yeah these big gaps and 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 tennis i guess is maybe just designed that way i mean it's such a you know every half the players are out by the the second round of a tournament everything's single elimination Mm -hmm. so maybe it's just 
that basic structure is not cohesive to having a, a large workforce that makes a lot of money. I, I don't I don't know where exactly but it is, you fix that. But it's, it's but it's also interesting because it shows up on the court, right? So like once mm-hmm. you're good and you're established, then you have a team. And you right. guys were just talking. I was listening to the NCR about the women's final mm-hmm. and Schweintech. Did I say that correctly? Schweintech. Uh-huh. That she has famously has a psychologist, and you guys talked about like how does she afford this? <laughs> how yeah. does she afford this psychologist to travel with her? And you like wondered aloud about is Poland paying for this? Uh, because it is like how do they pay for all these people? And the more money you have, the better you are, and that's one of the things that helps you stay on top and make more money. So it is this kind of that's a really difficult thing. So breaking through like it, winning a first round Grand Slam match can be like make or break for a lot of players it can keep them going literally for a year yeah. if they get this one opportunity um but if you don't then it's like and so it is interesting how it's just like that cycle of money is just perpetuating itself in a lot of ways that man it's a big deal when someone breaks through well i think that's in in many ways just built into tennis's dna and that's what we're trying to change it's what the williams sisters have been trying to change this image this idea that tennis is not supposed to be for everyone, right? Mm. Like it's not, a you don't have the right necessarily to have access to play tennis the way that we have said you should have access to other sports because it's, the sport is so built on notions of nobility and class differentiation and things like that. And that's what's changing. And when that changes, we have this influx of talent that we've never had before. And it's just better for the sport. And, you know, we can have the whole conversation about how diversity is good for your bottom line because it just yeah. is. Um, but especially on the men's side, right? I mean, the one thing that we haven't talked about in the conversation about equal pay that reminds me of this conversation when we talk about in soccer also is that especially if you just limit the conversation to the United States, I mean, no Americans are <laughs> are paying attention to the to international men more than they are paying Amer- paying attention to American women, right? Yeah. So the idea of growing the game here by expanding that access is so important not to be like super US centric about it. But obviously advertisers and television partners have to be paying attention to that here and have to recognize how important that access is. No, you're absolutely right. And we have seen that just from a US only perspective that the women's semifinals and finals of the US Open have gotten higher ratings than those men's rounds for consistently for like just about six years in a row. I think maybe four of the six finals have outpolled the men's final and then all six semifinals. And a lot of that is bigger stars. I think a Williams sister has been part of that semifinal slate every year. And those and those are bigger stars certainly than any American men have. But yeah, but it, the US has a big market and keeping that sort of float can can be really important. You mentioned the, um, the sort of pay and Talking about the Williams is one other thing you mentioned in the chapter, which gets brought up a lot with tennis, is the was the dichotomy with Serena Williams and Maria Sharapova during the peaks of both their careers and they overlapped where Sharapova was making more endorsement money than Serena, despite being still very, very good, but less successful than Serena, clearly also. Um, all the way up through their careers until Sharapova basically tested positive was when that that run ended for her. So that, that I think has been talked about a lot, but I'm wondering if you, this is a more positive note to hit in this thing. If, you, if that at all might've changed in within the last couple of years, because not just on the Sharapova point, but more generally, because I look at the coverage and the excitement and the, and the business sponsorships for Coco Golf, and she's getting a ton of attention and love and support financially from, and obviously the attention can be a harsh spotlight sometimes when she's struggling at the French Open like she did this year, but generally it's been very positive. And she's getting a lot more attention and recognition than some honestly more successful so far white American players in Sonia Kennan and Amanda Nisimova. Do you think, has there been possibly some movement on this? I'm wondering if the sort of the Sharapova construct, um, maybe through the backlash to it or not, because obviously this was something that got talked about a lot, the Sharapova-Serena unbalancedness there. Has maybe has Madison Avenue or the sports world already improved this in the last over the course of the last 15 years since this imbalance first was this visible in that rivalry? Or how, how would you how would you frame this, Kavitha, if you want to start? My, my approach to evaluating whatever Madison Avenue does, whenever advertisers do anything, is usually to look at the way they've always done things, because there's so much inertia built in mm-hmm. to how, especially in sports, how marketers strategize. And frankly, you know, 
if if it ain't broke, don't fix it. They've made money doing things the same way, catering to the same fans, propping up the same athletes who look the same as they always have. And there's always a reticence to change that or expand that because you don't know if if that's going to be as successful, right? And then I think once they were kind of forced to actually give Serena commercials and put her in yeah. more of a national spotlight and have her endorsing these products and take advantage of her incredible Instagram following and this brand and this personality that she's built. Once they saw the success of that, these advertisers are less afraid to do that with young, particularly black female talent that we now have on the American side to show that not only will white consumers still buy these products if it is a black woman tennis player endorsing them. But hey, maybe we can get young black kids actually to pay attention to our sport that they've never actually cared about before because this woman looks like me. And it really does just take that one tiny leap of faith in order to break that mold. It's really easy to you know, trot someone who looks like Maria Sharapova out there to sell cameras. Um, it should have been just as easy to trot Serena Williams out there as well. But that barrier, because they never had before, they had never been confronted with having to make that decision before, was, was so great to overcome. And I think you're right. I think it was the pressure of media. I think it was the pressure of fans recognizing how ridiculous the inequality in the sponsorship dollars was. Um I think that that forced the hand, and now that they see it returning, they see the success of it, there's really not a turning back on, on that point of it. Do we have a sense, like, do is there any data on how popular Serena is now? Like, I feel like in the last four or five years, she's more popular than yeah. I, I've I ever really seen. Think so. I really, I don't, in terms of data, I, I'm sure her endorsements have definitely gone up. I could, yeah. I don't know like, she just head. seems wildly popular to me, and I don't know... We obviously all curate our social media in certain directions, and mine is certainly a, in a pro Serena space. I participate in that. I'm a huge fan of hers, uh, but it does seem different now than even five or six years ago. And you know, some of that might be uh, the chase for 24 post pregnancy. Like there's a softening yeah. of an image at that point because of all of our ideas about moms and that sort of thing. Um, but the but then just the reality that tennis looks really different now. I mean, the Williams sisters have like just changed the way that tennis looks and you're either going to get on board or you're not. And they don't really have a choice at this point. Um, I do think social media in that sense of like the talk back to the inertia that Kavitha's talking about. Um, I think it has changed tennis commentary. I think it has changed um, that narrative around Sharapona, Sharapova and Serena. The first place I ever really saw it in loud, loud ways was on social media, um, sort of relentless going after the record, the terrible record that Sharapova had against Serena. And just, you know, I'm a, I like Sharapova. Um, I can take that controversial take too sure um i thought she was people do. good she's yeah. a good tennis player i like all the women that yell a lot <laughs> i'm also on that side let them yell yeah i just think that the women coming up behind her are sort of are riding that wave that we've seen over the last few years that she and venus worked incredibly hard to create it's not like it just suddenly happened or something like that but they just seem even more popular than ever and like Serena is now the greatest tennis player, right? Like, this is the point. Like, the, the women coming up behind her are coming in the wake of the greatest that we've ever seen, too. So that also helps the popularity and, and watching her. So this is actually measurable. Nielsen, Nielsen Sports keeps um, a metric called N-score that basically okay. measures the marketability of an athlete. And very quickly searching right now, I couldn't find more recent numbers in 2017 um, for the year of 2017 released at the at, in December of 17. Mm -hmm. But Serena ranked number one of the most marketable athletes as, as far as the N-score goes of all athletes in 2017, Venus was number two, LeBron was number three. And I'm wow. sure that those have shifted a little in the last few years. And LeBron has done a great job of, you know, bolstering his brand and using his activism in order to do that. And, and obviously, he just won a championship too. But the idea that just from measurable data that 
advertisers are absolutely looking at that Serena and Venus were one and two ahead of LeBron, Tom Brady, Aaron, Aaron Rodgers, like, you know, like that is not something that we had seen before. And if you look at what happened in 2017, it was the Australian Open, right? I mean, mm. that ridiculous. Pregnant, right? Yeah, I just I like got all <laughs> my heart just grew a size just you mentioning it. Yeah. But think of like Serena can fight through. I don't want to say fight through. Serena can win while she's pregnant, which is just an incredible physical feat, mm-hmm. and then not compete for the rest of the year and still be the most marketable athlete of that of that season. And that says a lot. Yeah. And that's a huge change. And that's something that brands are paying attention to. I do think. I think Jessica. I think you mentioned that this idea that Serena's image may have softened with motherhood through, and I think that definitely did happen. That was one thing that I think definitely probably did help her end score. It's could be the saying in 2017 that made her sort of a more sympathetic or relatable figure to a lot of people who might have previously found her, for whatever reasons, less appealing. And I think also, I think I really saw it shifts in 2015. Uh, when she was going for the calendar Grand Slam, which she came very close to doing at the U.S. Open. That was when I feel like there was a lot of sort of recognition, like, oh, wow, we've really been taking Serena for granted. And she has this possible coronation moment coming in New York, even, even if she didn't get all the way there. And the preparation in the month or two months leading up between Wimbledon and the U.S. Open that year really was this big Serena time. And that also did come at the same time as, I don't know, I'm exactly sure, I have to look these up, which Black Lives Matter protests were happening that summer. I do think there was this sort of movement moment and momentum in America towards uh, not taking black people for granted in all sorts of different ways. Right. And I do think that did some of that did translate into Serena Hmm. and that awareness of the sort of injustice that she had been done by Madison Avenue, if you want to use that word for it. I think she did fit into that. And America's sort of um, awareness and awakening to these sort of issues as a whole. I do think Serena was sort of in the right place in the right time commercially at that moment, cynically, uh, to where she was seen as some, a way people could make up for past uh, misdeeds or, or, you know, injustices, again, to use that word. Right. And she had been unapologetically black up to that point, right? Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't, she was someone who makes sense to see that. Like, I mean, she crip walked in 2012 and people wanted to, yeah, you know, <laughs> whatever they wanted to do to her at that point um like she had they had never shied away right like the entire boycott of indian wells was always about that so yeah if you're looking for someone within sports to rally around at a moment like that the williamses made a lot of sense and you're right it it, the fact that it went alongside the tennis media was excited about the potential of of the career or the the grand slam Yeah. yeah those those two things I'm sure stitch themselves nicely together. It does always help when it's going to sell papers, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It always helps when you're when you when it serves our interests in the media to support or continue to cover a really positive storyline. And the calendar slam was just that, right? And that coupled with I think you're absolutely right, Ben. I think 2015 was it was the Freddie Gray protests. I'm sure there are others that I'm that I'm that I'm missing. Um, but we had really started for the first time to have a conversation about this country and black bodies and mm-hmm. our relationship to them and how the the violence that we've historically enacted against them. And Serena's physical body has been such a topic of conversation in how all of these inequalities have gone on from her being accused of doping, which it was always it was a pretty ironic twist of fate when it was Maria Sharapova who ended up testing positive for a PED. From her doping to, you know, this idea that Serena, she's too muscular to be marketable, right? She was too built like a man, even though like her muscles and her strength and her power is what makes her such a great tennis player, right? And all of those conversations were coming on at the same time. And I think you're right. I think it was a confluence of a lot of these events. And also, I think just people having enough, people having enough of this conversation, like she's about to maybe win a calendar slam. Can we talk about the greatest tennis player of all time? Um, So, yeah, Serena is obviously the best American women's tennis player, if not by rankings currently, at least in the, in her generation and in the generation before, several generations spanning now that she's been the the queen of her realm in various different ways. Uh, the top men, men's, as I think we mentioned earlier, men's, American men's tennis has been considerably less relevant competitively and probably commercially. Um, but the top man, very consistently, I think for the last eight, nine years, with a couple brief interruptions, has been John Isner, um, who has been a lightning rod in his own ways, uh, 
culturally and symbolically and politically um, as being a, I wouldn't say outspoken, but a, de- a but a clear sort of supporter of very different politics. Uh, people, uh, he doesn't talk about them a lot in interviews or make a lot of statements per se, but his likes column on Twitter, which plenty of people have discovered is full of support for various uh, conservative politics and, and pro-Trump mm-hmm. things more recently during the Trump administration that has been off-putting to a lot of potential fans of his and past fans of his and people who just have to watch him, even they're not fans of his. Um, from the lens of your book, I'm curious, like, how do you think fans can or should or shouldn't, you know, reconcile watching, potentially cheering for uh, someone whose politics they find uh, disagreeable or, mm. or harmful or whatever else you see? Because, I mean, especially even, let's say, in a context like a Davis Cup situation, right, where he's leading the U.S. team and as an American fan, you might want to root for the U.S. to beat whoever they're playing in this Davis Cup tie, but you also find certain aspects of him fair. And I think he would probably say that, or I, I'm not sure exactly what he'd say on this, but, you know, it should, my politics shouldn't be relevant to me as a tennis player on court. Some, a lot of fans will agree with that. Other fans will find that harder to reconcile. So where do you sort of put the the watching or supporting or not supporting? And some people, you know, very, will very clearly be like, I cannot do this too. And is that fair also? Uh, how, how do you sort of stand on, on the Isner uh problem if you want to call it that i i think it's also important before we talk about isner to mention that he's the best example of why we shouldn't have five setters um (laughs) so he there's lots of reasons to not watch him play tennis at this point from my perspective i think yes is the answer yeah um i think yes is the like all of those reactions to him or to any player based on their politics or whatever reason i don't you know like all of those are valid <laughs> when it comes to fandom. Like one of the things in the book that we realize is like that there, there's no one answer to how fans navigate all of this stuff. So yeah, maybe when it's Davis Cup and your nationalism kicks in and you find yourself dealing with it more because you want to support the U.S. or whatever, whereas on an individual level, you um, don't want to watch him play. Like I think anytime people... They're all you're always kind of navigating this stuff um, in whatever way makes you feel the most comfortable. But absolutely, if if you the things that people believe politically matter, uh, their worldview matters, whether or not I want to support them absolutely comes into play. I don't like watching him play tennis. I don't like watching Simone play tennis because he said all those terrible things about women in equal pay, however many years ago, like I've held on to that. Uh, like that's just my grudge list. And I think it really is up to the individual fan. But I mean, we're talking about like life and death issues. We're talking about like whether or not you see people as other, like everyone, their human rights and their civil rights. I mean, these are the things that it's just, why would you, you don't have to support someone who doesn't see you as a full human being. And that's clear in the politics. And I think it's okay to feel that way and to recognize that and to say that out loud. And I will, the last thing I'll say about this is that he doesn't get questions about it. He doesn't have to answer for it a lot of the time because the people asking him questions don't think about him as someone necessarily who's political. They look like him. Uh, They see themselves, the sport itself is conservative in general. That's a lot of what we've been talking about here. So he's not pushing on the entire framework of tennis by his existence like when Serena or other black tennis players or players of color when they show up places they don't fit like they just visually don't fit within the world of tennis right and someone like John Isner can kind of just move through that space because he just fits there Uh, and his politics don't really push on anything that makes the people covering him and caring about him uncomfortable in a way that they want to question it constantly. And that just says a lot about the world in which he's playing and um, a lot about sports media in general, um, tennis media in particular, I guess. So I don't, I think if he was constantly asked about Trump, then there would probably be a lot more people who would have a lot of trouble with him. Yeah. The one sort of one thing thinking of coming to mind that I didn't mention, and he's not as competitive competitively relevant generally, although has had some good results in recent years, is Tennis Sangren, who had yeah. the more overt sort of support or implicit support of like Charlottesville marchers, like way more extreme yes. politics, way more distasteful politics that he was more overt about in his timeline on Twitter before uh, he was in the spotlight because he was barely top 100 when he went. And then he did have got. to answer for it. Yeah, right? and he did. Like, and he did. That's and my that memory got, that, that got called out. 
back to get right that like Tiger he King. went too far in that way he yeah. wasn't subtle enough and and what and like i mean serena had her her tweet about him like turning the channel like it wasn't he didn't name him like but it was clear that within the tennis world um and you just don't get that for whatever reason maybe i imagine john isner is a nice person i don't know enough about him so yes he is it's very, very, very congenial yeah. and very collegial to deal with, for sure. So I assume, like, in person, all these interactions that lots of people have with him, he is nice and fits all these things. Like, and those things came, come into play when um, we think about how people are interacting with him. But if you don't want to watch him because his politics are ones you don't agree with, that's fine. If it doesn't bother you and you, if you, if you can stand to watch him play for eight hours at a time, uh, you should go ahead and do that. Like... Whatever is fine is really the answer. I think it's really well. First of all, John Isner's Paul John Isner having political views is never framed as a radical act in itself. That's just right. Like that's just a that's just how we expect it to be, and that's because sports media, tennis media, is an inherently conservative space. But any athlete of color expressing a political view is framed automatically as incredibly radical, right? It, I think it's interesting, Ben, that you po- that you pose the question because this is essentially a stick to sports question, right? Like yeah. that's what this mm-hmm. question is, um, yeah. and it's in, it's always interesting. And I've thought about this a lot since we've been doing this book tour about how stick to sports, quote unquote, works both ways, right? So the example I'll give is my favorite player of any sport growing up was Mariano Rivera, New York Yankees closer. And I have recently come to find out that this person who was such an integral part of my childhood happiness and who I still love to this day is a supporter of the of the president. And on opening day, ESPN had a whole pre-show, which was like really exciting. Baseball's back, even though I feel weird that baseball's back because I don't think it's safe. And that's a whole other conversation we can have. We'll get to but that. they did um, a pre-show from the White House lawn with the president and Mariano Rivera. And for the first time in my entire life, as someone who has always responded to the trolls who say stick to sports and I say stick to sports has never been a thing this has never been possible sports have always been political and you only want people to stick to sports when it's when it's politics you don't agree with a hundred percent I felt that I identified with that for the first time in my life because I was watching that show and I was like man I wish they would just give me baseball instead of putting this and reminding me of this dilemma that I'm confronted with every day so to go back to tennis and with John Isner and fans, like Jessica said, there isn't one solution. There's not one right answer. One of the things that I think we've learned in doing this book also is not just to be kinder to ourselves and the fact that we have these dilemmas and we don't always know how to reconcile them, but to be kinder to other people. If I don't agree with your politics and I think that your politics do not deny my humanity, I'm going to have those feelings, but I also understand your inability to completely give up sports because of that, right? Because I have felt that in some way myself too. So I don't think that people should necessarily feel guilty about continuing to watch people whose politics that they disagree with, you know, and it, and it really comes down to one of the things that we talk a lot, one of the through lines in this book is recognizing not only that athletes are workers, which we've talked about, but that athletes are human beings and they're flawed, um, and they're complicated, and they're not, you know, black and white. Everything exists in the gray in what we're talking about here, right? So along with those flaws are going to be having viewpoints and politics and, you know, opinions about women and all of these things that we might not agree with, but having to accept this totality of a human being that is an athlete instead of this kind of two-dimensional thing that we watch on television is a really integral part of that dilemma and of our fandom. Um, and it's 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 so hard because we we do want all of these people, these teams, and these athletes that we love to reinforce our own senses of ourselves, our own values, and our own identity. And that's just not what they're there for. And that's difficult to let go of. Can I just add that we've talked a lot about Serena on this podcast because I will talk to you about her all day long if you let me. But um, I can't remember exactly when this was. Sorry, I don't. I can't remember what yesterday was, honestly. But um, when Steubenville happened, yes, that was twenty thirteen. Um, which yeah. okay, which was this horrific 
sexual assault case in Ohio, Steubenville, Ohio, right, with football players. Um, and two of the boys were eventually found responsible. I can't remember. It was juvie, so it's not convicted. But whatever the correct language is on that. Um, and Serena was asked about this and gave a really sh- shitty, can I say shitty? on sure. her podcast Please. she gave a really shitty response I, my memory of it was it was a lot of it was very victim blaming yeah. kind of language about the young woman involved and and got immediate backlash apologized almost immediately um but i have had i mean i'm if you follow me at all on twitter like it's no like it's clear that i like watching her that she is one of my favorite athletes in the entire world that i get a lot of joy out of that and i've had because i write so much on gendered violence within sport i've had people question me about that and and say like how how can you support this person like and they have chosen not to like that that for them was a line that they drew that was so hurtful um that they don't want to go back from that and i don't fault them and i just kind of for me, that's something I, didn't, I, I don't even know if I have a good explanation for how I compartmentalize that in my own head um, around Serena, right? But like I did and it doesn't affect my fandom in the way that it does for other people. And that but like I get that like I'm not mad at people who who drew that line and, and found that to be the point when they couldn't support her anymore. Um, and so it's not just I mean, I have, I have lots of feelings capital F feelings about John Isner, but like there are these, this is true as Kavitha was just saying that these are all human beings and they're all flawed. Um, And so we're, we're working through this all the time, even with the ones that we tend to idolize in, in my case. Yeah, no, it's it's a calculus people have to make on their own levels and how much intently they want to do this, how much research, like I've seen like Danielle Collins is another white American player. I saw a lot of people who had initially not liked her suddenly start to like her when they found out she was anti-Trump. For example, she had like some Donald yeah. Trump toilet brush she was using on some Insta story once and all the people who had assumed her politics were pro-Trump because she's a white Floridian tennis player. And that's sort of the percentage guess there probably <laughs> suddenly really warmed to her, but then also realized they still find parts of her on court obnoxious and might not like her and vice versa. There was another young player, Sebastian Corda, who made the fourth round of the French Open this year, a young 18 year old American who got a lot of immediate support from fans or just being like, oh, look, here's a new exciting person. And then they found his likes column full of liking Trump tweets and were sort of put off by that, but not sure how much they should swing the pendulum all the way against him suddenly or the person they just were introduced to essentially. So it's a, yeah, it's it's a, it's an, it's a sort of balance and an uneasy swing in a lot of directions. It can be. I do think that the, you know, to go back to our discussion about the individual nature of tennis, that Mm -hmm. it just heightens these conversations that we're having, right? Because you can't just tell yourself as a fan, I'm only rooting for the team or I'm just rooting right. for the laundry, you know? It's less tribal, I'm, yeah. It's less tribal, but you also don't have the cover of the team of the name on the front instead of the name on the back kind of thing. Um, and I'm not going to lie. I have, if if there is, if there are two players who are playing each other and I know something personal about one player that I agree with or identify with, that's going to swing the pendulum, right? Yeah. And that's just a much easier, that's a, that's a much more heightened part of that discussion. It's, mu- it's a much more concentrated dilemma in a sport like tennis than it would be in baseball or a team sport. So the last sort of big topic to get to, you alluded to this, I think, earlier, Jessica, I believe it was you, who mentioned the playing on through a pandemic and the sort of stick to sports mantra that can come with that and the bubble of that uh, that we've had in this time. And tennis has been a sport that was relatively slower to come back, uh, but came back uh, in August and had the, maybe late July, and had the U.S. Open come and then just recently had the French Open wrap up and now has assorted remaining indoor events in Europe, even as there continues to be spiking COVID there. Just as general sports fans, and obviously there are different sorts of labor issues involved from a, a sports perspective, especially with college sports, having athletes come back or getting, who aren't getting paid and different, how that all fits is a different conversation, I think. But in, I guess, in tennis a bit, but also wider sports, how, how can fans this is where i certainly feel a lot of ambivalence about obviously i love sports but i do not think that it's tonally appropriate let's say for them to be acting like nothing's happening or even just to be continuing on as thousands of people die each day from this this thing um and i've felt a lot of ambivalence towards these tennis events that are going on now and i think that will only continue as the events get less important as they're non-grand slams in the fall i don't plan on caring about these events very much uh how yeah how how are you two reconciling this sort of unique 2020 pandemic tone of of pushing through this specifically it's a new twist on 
on sports ambivalence this year? I don't think I've reconciled it. I don't think I'm ever going to reconcile no, it is maybe the right answer yeah. to your question. Can I ask Ben, like, how has COVID been? I mean, I, again, we can talk about Novak Djokovic and whatever the hell he was doing earlier in the summer. But yeah. like once the, once late July and into August, like how has it COVID been within the tennis world? So there have been, there've been like a small handful of positive tests at some okay. events, um, but nothing since the Djokovic cluster in mm-hmm. uh to use that word in many ways in in the summer <laughs> in in Croatia and Serbia has been yeah. like a real like meltdown okay. of an event. Um, but there, you know, but there were like, for example, the French Open had an initial plan as of just a few weeks before the tournament, maybe three weeks, of having like eleven thousand fans on site uh, during the event, and that got wow. cut by, to five thousand, and then the week before it got cut to one thousand. So like, yeah, because that's a tight space. Yeah, and, and, and it's a semi-indoor hmm. arena, the main arena, because yeah, the roof yeah. that's not totally sealed. And then even then, once they only had 1,000, they were all like sitting really near the really court. Really close, like, they weren't, yeah. They weren't spaced out as much as it could be in this 15,000, roughly, seat arena. Uh, I guess so there was that whole that was thing around, was it Par Paré? Was that the U.S. Open? Uh, Benoit Paré, yeah. He was the Pair. one who um, who tested positive in New York, and so okay. the players who have been in contact so with him been some were slowly actual... pulled out. Yeah, there's been, there's been some mess. Okay. There's been some mess. I mean... I don't think I'm going to reconcile it. I don't think they should be like in the sense of, as you said, a lot of people are sick. A lot of people have died. We as a like, especially here in the U.S., I think from a U.S. perspective, we have not handled this pandemic well at all on any kind of level. Uh, And so it is a really weird visual message to see people returning to, quote unquote, a normal kind of event when we really all shouldn't be assuming that returning to anything like normal is safe at this point in time uh i will say it on the flip side like what where was it that um venus and serena played on that tiny oh, in court? lexington yeah lexington i had so much joy ben like that just great. that was great that was a great match and it, terrible camera angles i didn't care i was, was so excited to watch them play i was so happy um, I watched a lot of the U.S. Open. I will say the French Open being in September meant in October meant that I couldn't I didn't actually watch it because uh, <laughs> I just it didn't fit with my life. I was like, wow, I am I need the European tournaments to be in the in the summertime in order for me to watch this. Uh, so I, I didn't like purposely boycott. I'm, okay. I watched a fair amount of the WNBA. I watched a fair amount of the NBA in the bubbles. And I, I just don't think there's a good answer here because we're talking about a huge systemic issue. And as individuals, we're making individual choices that aren't actually going to have an impact on on these systemic things. And once these people, as Kavitha has said repeatedly, like these are laborers and these are people and they're making this choice and they're going in and they're sacrificing a lot of stuff. So as much as these bubbles have worked as far as COVID goes, they have been damaging i mean this is true of the nhl too mental health right like these players are telling us that this is really really difficult on them yeah. uh, on a personal level and so there's sacrifices that are happening i feel i always kind of feel an, an obligation i enjoy it but i also feel an obligation to especially sport support women when they go <laughs> when they play sport uh because Historically, they don't get the kind of support that I think they deserve. So if they're going to go out there and play, I feel like I want to support them. I wanted to support the WNBA with everything that they were doing on and off the court around social justice and racial, racist police violence. Uh, And so I don't know. I have no good answer. I don't think they should be happening at the same time. I watch them and I consume them as a fan. And then the thing we were just talking about with tennis, like, it's one thing if you're Serena or Djokovic or Federer, who's just not played at all, like they're fine. Like what's happening to like the people who are ranked 200th? Like what's what's happening to those people right now? And I'm really worried about what that will look like on the other side for them. So if they are going back to play in a sport that has no security, I can't blame them for that. If, you know, it's like, yeah. what, what do you do with all these feelings? I don't know. I don't think there's a reconciliation here. Yeah, I, I don't think we should have fans in the stands. It's it's yeah, like that's, that's true. That's my that's hard line, line, right? Like yeah. that's sure. the one that. the one thing that I actually have a like definitive answer for is that there should not be fans in the stands right now, and that is ridiculous. Um, but I'm I'm with Jessica on this. Like I don't think it's safe to be playing these games. I think it's it's really terrible messaging. I think um, 
you know, it lulls people into a false sense of security. And at the same time, I love watching it, man. Like, I, I don't know how to I don't know how to reconcile that. And, you know, I'm I'm from New York. I was in L.A. when COVID first started to hit. But I would talk to my friends, um, especially when it was getting really I'm back in New York now, but especially when it was getting really bad here. And it felt like New York was kind of on this island and New Yorkers were dealing with this kind of on their own to the level at which they were. And I would have these Zooms with my friends every week and, and I would see the despair and I would hear the sirens and I would hear them describe what it was like every day for someone to, you know, for EMTs to have to come into their building to pick someone else up and and all of that. And I remember talking to one of my best friends who I think I think they were doing like a just a baseball simulation, like literally just a box score simulation coming to his phone, <laughs> not even watching anything on TV. And he was like, this is the most normal I've felt in like four or five months. And like I talked to so many people who would just say, I know this isn't safe, but I want something to make me feel normal again. Yeah. And I don't even if even if you think it's irresponsible, which I do, I don't know how to tell that person they're wrong to feel that way. Right. And that therein lies that dilemma is that these these sports do bring us so much joy and they can serve as such a distraction. But at the same time, we can't stick to sports when we're talking about playing sports in a pandemic. Right. Like there's just no way to separate those things. Yeah. So I don't. I don't know. I have no good answer for that either. I will. I don't know if there's time to talk about this, but the Go idea that Wimbledon had pandemic, like Ooh, full pandemic job, insurance Wimbledon. is a whole thing that I've wanted to talk about for like <laughs> months. The British Open on the golf side and Wimbledon had full pandemic insurance. And I, I, I've wanted to talk to somebody about this. I don't know what the answer is. How did they have that foresight? Is it just part of like European sensibility to be insured because that's really not part of like our American psyche where does that come from but it was just a brilliant move on their part frankly so that they didn't have to you know be they didn't have to force Wimbledon right they weren't in a they were making a choice position. yeah exactly. they didn't ha they didn't feel forced in a choice yeah. yeah I think that's I don't have a great answer for why that happened I think it is my guess is it's kind of more of a British cultural thing. They're really into insurance. I think they have Lloyd's of London is like a famous insurer that insures insures all sorts of odd things. So, well, they're like the ones who like so like legs, like get, yeah, like insure like J Lo's <laughs> butt. It's like they're the ones who do that yeah. kind of insurance or whatever the ridiculous things that get attention. Um, and a lot of tennis players actually have insurance from them, being like, because they are they have precarious earnings. If one of them, you know, if you tear an ACL, yeah. you get no money for you know until you're back. And so I think. I think, yeah, maybe that is a British thing. And Australia actually also had pandemic insurance, the Australian Open, but it expired in like twenty mid-2020 and would not, and they were not going to be able to renew their policy for any reasonable rate for 2021. So they, that's just terrible luck for them that they had. Is the Australian Open happening? Done. So Australian Open is the next big query because they okay. are set for, are set for uh, late January as usual, mid-late January, but they are their domestic rules on travel are way stricter than the other countries. Hmm, they, have, interesting. they have mandatory 14 day quarantines for everybody arriving to the country. Um, and so, and they're trying to find ways they're not gonna be able to bend it basically as much as the U S did. And the EU did for returning players from the U S open. So hmm. um, it's, it's going to be a bunch of different wrestlings over that. And we'll see. And they also seem less, um, I don't know. I, I, I've, I, I remain, very on the fence about all these events happening i didn't really believe the u.s open was going to happen until it was like yeah a week out and it was like while well, the players are arriving it's actually going to happen i always kind of thought they would decide and the, the new york numbers did cooperate in terms of they didn't re-spike between when they announced and when the uh the US open started but in europe during the french open they were mm -hmm. numbers in france are going up and they were shutting down cafes and restaurants in paris but still having the tennis tournament soldier on so it was a a weird weird time yeah and i'm not any more comfortable or enthusiastic but at the same time you're right i did have the moments sorry i did have the moments during the summer when nhl which is what sport i'm a fan of came back and it was also in a fan-free bubble in a different mm -hmm. country in canada that was doing really well with the pandemic i was like very enthusiastic about that returning initially um and think they did a, a better job than a lot of sports have even if you're right that it was a major mental grind for the players and as a labor situation it's it's rough for sure for them to be basically you know in a sort of cage uh and not being able to be with their families or anything like that for this extended period of time just to play sports so yeah so it's it's messy but that was what i did a more wholeheartedly allow myself to enjoy than some of the messier well, kind of stuff i will say that i 
enjoyed. I don't know if that's the right word, but you did your whole um, Twitter thread yesterday about Sam Query getting out of Russia. (laughs) And it, you know, it's just like, what are we doing? Like, what are we doing here? Uh, And part of my own, like the judgment that I brought to that story was like, why is his wife and eight month old child like traveling with him during COVID? And that's an easy thing for me to judge because I'm literally in a 1400 square foot house with my child husband and dog and we've all just been in this space together like I don't I'm not making any of those choices I'm not going anywhere I'm not having to figure that out but I did immediately I was like why are you doing this but like why are we all (laughs) doing like why is that a story that's even possible uh it's just that those are the moments when it's really hard to justify and I would like um when we're off record for you to tell me what country he's in now thank you I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, Jessica Kavitha, thank you very much for being. Any any last thoughts before I wrap this up that either you want to share on sports, love of them, tough love, anything? No, we're good. I think this has been no. good. Thank you very much for both being on here. This book, once again, is loving sports. I'm gonna make sure I get the title exactly right. Loving sports when they don't love you back. Dilemmas of the modern fan. Available anywhere fine books are sold. I don't know if there's a, a best place for people to buy this. It's most helpful to you or anything. I no? would love if people bought it from their local independent bookstore, if possible. Bookstores. But you yeah. can get it wherever books are sold. We'll put a look. One of those, and there's links that sort of point you towards those. We'll put one of those in the yeah. episode description. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, for ideal buying. Thank you very much, Jessica Kadifa, for being here. Thanks for having Thank us. You. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. So thank you to Kavitha and Jessica, and thank you all for listening to NCR. If you want to support the show, there are a few ways to do that. That would be just swell. One easy one is to leave us a review on iTunes or Apple's podcast app or Spotify. I believe those help us a lot. You can tell your friends to listen, and you can become a backer of our show on Patreon as well. Patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. Three new people have become backers since we last recorded an episode. They are Trisha Ward, Kathleen Sharkey, and last week's guest on NCR, Ken Solomon. So thank you to Trisha, Kathleen, and Ken. Again, patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. Where to find us there if you want to add your support. And thank you, as always, to our Patreon Slam Champ backers on there, who we thank every episode. Liz Kennel, Jonathan Weinbaum, Mary Crillo, Leah Williams, Chuang Nguyen, Betty, Audrey Wellens, Sean Mulroy, Susanna W., Jean Simeon and Antonio Maycumber, and our GOAT backers, Mike, Charles Cena, Nicole Copeland, and Jay O-D. Also, we would really appreciate if you voted less than two weeks until voting in the U.S. ends for this big federal election. I voted yesterday in D.C. It felt great. D.C. vote doesn't matter much, but still, it's all I could do to vote, and I all I, else I can do is hope that you vote too. Please, please do go vote. It is time for America to make a serious decision. Bye, guys. Take some time to think, figure out what's important to you. You gotta make.